Every now and then I get asked, do you ever get nervous to preach? And I just have to be really honest, the answer is most weeks. But some weeks, more so than others. Um, today, as I was greeting you guys and saying hello, I just got hit with a lot of nerves. So I want to start with a word of prayer and just come before the Lord before we get into this. Can we do that? Heavenly Father, you have invited us in to be with you. And you are the giver of all peace. Lord, as we prepare to get into your word on a subject that for many hits really close to home, brings up a lot of pain and guilt and even sometimes shame. We ask that your forgiveness and your grace would abound in this place. We ask that you would pour out healing today. That the words and the things in which I share come not from me, but from you. And God, we ask that above all else, you be glorified, that you would be honored, that you would be the one who moves in each one of us as we so need. For your glory, amen. So as I mentioned with that disclaimer for children, today as we dive into this Bad Dads series, Exploring Generational Sin, we're going to talk about something that whether you experience this as a child or not, it's probably been a part of your world at some point or another. The snare of lust. The reality that is for every one of us present all the time. And I want to warn you, if other people's sexual sin has caused you pain and trauma in the past, the text we're going to look at today deals with some really difficult things. And so if it brings up for you a lot of hurt or a lot of questions or a lot of unknowns, this is a safe place. And if you would like at any point later to dive into this privately, uh, I will gladly do that. You see, the text we're beginning with as we look at this reality of dads in Scripture who did a lot of good things and also some really bad things begins with a man you're well acquainted with who rapes another. His name is David. We're going to begin in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you'd like to follow along, the page number for this is 328 in the blue Bibles in front of you. Feel free to use your phones or your own Bibles as well. David had been anointed king and set on a throne to rule. God had given him a promise that his descendants would rule forever, that he would have a throne that has no end. God has given David everything good and great imaginable. And in chapter 11 of this story, David loses sight of what really matters. Beginning in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rebeth. But David remained at Jerusalem. 
Right off the bat, as the reader, we should know something is wrong because kings lead the way into battle, but David sends his men and stays behind. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof on the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Perhaps you've heard this story before. And sometimes we teach it as if Bathsheba was a guilty party, one who was doing something immoral or wrong. Why was she bathing on the roof and naked? And yet, it describes here that she was purifying herself. She was going through all the processes God had given, for this is how you make yourself clean after that time of the month. This is what you do to be holy before Me. And as the Hebrew goes on a little further, what we see is David constantly objectifies her. In fact, he does not mention her directly by name until after he ends up repenting. The whole time between now and when he's called out for his sin, he just takes her. It uses all kinds of aggressive uh, verbs like he sees her, he takes her, he lies with her, things that are very active towards her. And the text conveys this sense that while she was innocent, he was not. And as a man in power with great authority, he used that power and that authority to get what he wanted. And then when she's pregnant, the story goes on, he tries to cover it up and say none of this happened, and he tries to do so by convincing her husband to just act like it didn't happen. You come home from war, sleep with your wife, and then they'll think that it's your child and not mine. And when that doesn't work, because he's more righteous than David, he has her husband killed so he can legally and rightly take her as his wife. And then say, no, nothing wrong happened here. And act like there was no sin. David, if you may know, is known as a man after God's own heart. Perhaps one of the greatest kings the world has ever seen shy of Jesus, one of his descendants, the one who does sit on the throne forever. And yet David used his power to take advantage of another. To murder, to lie, to cover it all up. And as we see here in a moment, this habit of sexual sin, this curse of doing things that he should not do doesn't stop with David. If you just flip forward a one or two chapters to chapter 13, there's a really horrible story where one of David's sons falls madly in love with his sister. If that raises a few red flags for you, you should have some red flags. That's not okay, and it's wildly wrong. And so here we are in second chapter, Samuel chapter 13, in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Ammon, David's son, loved her. 
Actually, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is an uncle and a niece, not a brother and sister. But anyway, it continues in verse 11. He speaks with a friend and he gets this wisdom from a friend. I'm madly in love, but I don't know how to get her to love me back. What should I do? And the friend tells him, well, just deceive her. Specifically, here's how the story unfolds and the stuff I'm going to skip past. He says, just pretend that you're sick and then ask David to send her to you that she can bring you food and help you heal. And then while she's there, do as you please. So, beginning in verse 11, But when she brought them, that is the food she had made, when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. David uses his power to take advantage of a woman sexually, and then in turn we see this continuing in his sons and his family, his extended family, this pattern of sexual sin, taking what is not yours to take, doing what is not right to do. That verse in Exodus that we've hit on each week, that God will visit the iniquities of the sins, or the iniquities of the fathers, the third and fourth generation. There is a truth that all sin gets passed on. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, you and I are inherently sinful because of Adam, our first father. We are prone to do what we should not do, but there's no sin that violates the human and destroys the soul quite like sexual sin. It has a perverse way of destroying everything good that God has made. Of destroying everything good that He is doing. Of cutting to the core and asking this question, who am I or who can I ever become after this? David takes advantage of a woman. Now Ammon does the same. Absalom in revenge, kills him. So David's son is now not worthy of being on the throne because this family drama continues to increase. Then the story continues a little bit later. We're going to flip ahead to 1 Kings chapter 11. There's a lot of really good stuff between here you should read later. But what happens is David dies and it's time for a son to ascend the throne and there's fighting and there's turmoil and finally Solomon, the son he has with Bathsheba, finally the son rises to the throne and God says, what would you like? I'll give you anything. And he says, all I want is wisdom because I have no idea what I'm doing. And God blesses him with wisdom and then with wealth and with honor and everything he didn't ask for. And then what we see is despite all of that wisdom, Solomon goes in the same direction as his father. Sort of. Here's what happens in chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, 
Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. A little bit of backstory for you. God had warned the people of Israel, do not marry foreigners or outsiders. Not because he said it was bad to marry outsiders, but because they will turn your heart away from me and towards their gods. They will turn your heart towards the things they worship and the culture they come from towards their family of origin. You know, interestingly enough today, I can almost guarantee you of a certain fact whenever I do a wedding. If the groom goes to the point and the bride previously went to another church, I can almost guarantee you within a year of getting married, they will go back to her church. It just happens every single time, pretty much. There's a truth of the matter that you as guys are prone to follow your wives where she leads because you like them. There's a reason you married them. And if you're not married, you're probably prone to follow women where they lead because you like them too. It generally is the case. And so... God warns, don't marry foreigners. You're not going to succeed in converting them. In fact, the opposite will be the, fact, the truth. Despite all of his wisdom, he loves many foreign women from all of these tribes that are dead set against the Lord. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination, uh, uh, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. See, David had this problem of sin where in his desire he saw a beautiful woman And when he inquired who is this woman and found out that she was married, that did not stop him. He pursued her anyway. He used his authority to get what he wanted regardless of the consequence. Solomon, the son of David, just like Ammon, the son of David, sees a beautiful woman and chases after them, not once, not twice, but 700 wives and 300 concubines. You think one is enough? Imagine the problem of 700. Sexual sin is rampant in David's family. And I would beg to say, for many of us, it is in our family as well. We have learned, for many of us, from our fathers or our mothers, patterns and behavior that is simply not what God has for us. 
For some of us, the sexual sin has been real trauma and hurt. Like David and Bathsheba or Ammon and Tamar has been somebody who has done something grossly wrong against you. As we begin to break some of the curse of sin to receive those blessings to the thousand generations God promises. Let me begin by saying if you have been the victim of somebody else's sexual sin, it is not your fault. Sin is always the fault of the one who is doing it and it is not your fault if you have been the victim. But when we have been victimized, now what? See, unfortunately what happens time and time again is when sexual sin is in the family, it persists to the third and fourth generation, not because of a God who's angry and wants to punish, but because we learn from our fathers and our mothers the very habits we begin to do. And so when we've been hurt, we begin to believe this is what a healthy relationship looks like, and we pursue it and have no idea what a healthy relationship really is. When we have been wronged, we begin to believe sometimes there is no other way. Let me just give myself to this wrong that has happened. We think we can hide or feel numb to the pain by ignoring it. That never works. In David's story, what I love is David does this terrible thing and a close friend of his, a prophet, one who speaks for God, comes to him and says, imagine, and he tells this hypothetical story about a man who has nothing except for one little sheep and a man who has everything, and he takes the little sheep from the man who has nothing and he kills it for himself. He says, what would you do to this man? And David gets angry and says, I would kill that man. He deserves it. And his friend says, this man is you, for you have taken Uriah's wife and she was not yours when you had everything before you. Here, as it talks about Solomon, it says Solomon in his lust turned from God and began to pursue everything other than God, unlike the heart of his father, David. See, David sinned sexually, and when he was confronted with that sin, he could have hidden it some more ignored it further, dismissed it, and said, well, I'm king, I can do what I want, or whatever, it doesn't matter, I couldn't control it, I could have made all kinds of excuses. But when David was confronted with his sin, he repented. That psalm that we watched that video of, Psalm 51, is one that was written right after he's confronted, where he said, God, look at me, and he repents, and he bears his sin before the Lord. You alone can make me new, Lord. You alone can cleanse me from this. Sexual sin has been in your family and in your past. Know this it is not your future. It does not need to be your future, even if it has shaped your present reality. There is hope for something altogether different. But when it comes to sexual sin, we live in a culture that is so sexualized that is so hypersexualized that we actually often don't even think what is sexual sin. And we're like, well, it's no big deal, right? Because I'm not raping anybody. I'm not taking advantage of anybody. I'm not forcing my will on anybody. And so who cares what I do as long as whatever I do is good for me and mutually consensual? That's what our culture says. 
Unfortunately, sexual sin and patterns of sexual sin in families go much deeper than just abuse. I think it's somewhere about 90% of all men in the church, not even other men who don't believe in God, 90% would admit in the last 30 days to have looked at porn. Sadly, it's like 70% of women. This isn't just guys are terrible, filthy pigs and women are not. No, we collectively have a problem where we are so hyper-driven by our culture to believe that sex is the greatest God and the ultimate pleasure and the, the best fulfillment that we collectively have become numb to the dangers all around us. And it's tempting when we think about sexual sin to say, well, those other sinners do this, not me. But the truth is, we all do. Solomon, in his wisdom, he writes uh, lots of different things. And among the things he writes is the book of Proverbs. Most of it is attributed to Solomon, probably from him. And there are three chapters specifically in Proverbs where he speaks about the danger of adultery. Chapters 5 through 7. We're just going to look at a couple of verses in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 27 through 29. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Before this, he talks about the allure of beauty and the one who, who calls out and beckons and seems so pleasing at the time. In our culture that is hypersexualized, we have it all around us. And often we normalize it as very good. Because to be honest, sex is good. It was intended to be good. But what we do with that and how we practice it, how we live it out, what we allow to be our driving force may or may not be good. Can you carry fire close to your chest and not get burned? See, I think oftentimes there is, when it comes to sexual desire and sinfulness, this idea that says, well, I'm not hurting anybody else, so what's wrong with this? We think it's private and it's hidden and it's secret, and because of that, who cares? It's okay. I am a bit of a pyro myself. I tend to like fires. And I can promise you, if you carry fire physically close to your body, at some point, your clothes will get singed or your body will get burned. Can you hold this near and dear and toe the line and say it's not that big of a problem? Maybe. But is it worth playing with fire? He continues and says this, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious. He will not spare when he takes revenge. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. 
maybe it's not been other people sinning against you, but your own sinfulness. And this verse strikes a chord. See, if you've ever been there where you've done something that you know you shouldn't have done, where you were caught looking at things you shouldn't be looking at, if you've ever been in that place, you know the pain of this verse. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. There's a truth that sin is fun for a while. But at some point, it will hurt. Sin is fun for a long while. In fact, uh, when I was in, in college, I heard somebody say this. And he says, anybody who tells you that sin is not fun has clearly never done it. It's a lot of fun. You wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. But sin will always hurt. I grew up in a culture, thankfully before the digital age was really prevalent. Many of you did as well. And despite the fact that it was not readily available at my fingertips, I can vividly remember being in sixth grade and going four houses down the street to my neighbor's house. And there in his treehouse was a box of all kinds of magazines. Readily available anytime I wanted to sneak over to his yard. We live in a culture that has normalized sexual sin in such a way that as a sixth grader, if I just want to go down the street to my friend's house, it's readily available. As if it's no harm to you or to me or anyone else. But sexual sin will always burn. It'll always hurt at some point. And I know, having been that sixth grader who didn't really know what I was getting into, that by the time I realized what I was getting into, I didn't really know how to stop. And for years in my life, that drawback to a thing I knew was not good seemed too powerful to break. Maybe it's not somebody else's sexual sin that has been shaping your life but your own. Addictions you don't want anybody to know about, habits you try to hide, behaviors you think this is okay this time and in this circumstance. And maybe like me, you know that weight of shame and guilt. This is not who I'm supposed to be, but I don't know how to be anything different. Sometimes we think, well, it's just my thoughts my jokes, my words, what harm could come? Jesus in the book of Matthew chapter 5, he amplifies this even more. He says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Any one of us, just to look with lust, is sinful. We don't have to do anything. When it comes to habits and patterns that shape our family, I think few of us have avoided a family past with sexual sin. I think it's so far around us that we've just become numb to it, like a fish in the ocean wondering what is water. I don't know. It's just 
is. And I think for many of us, we think there's no way it could ever be any different. So as we dive into sexual sin today, what I want to encourage you with is this. If you or your family or your past has been filled with all kinds of things that you know is not good, because even looking lustfully is committing adultery, this does not need to be your future as a family. See, part of the reason we're looking at at dads in Scripture who've done it wrong is so that we can learn from them and do it differently. Wherever you've been does not need to be where you're going. And so if you're here and you're like, I I get this, I've had that trauma, I've experienced that pain, I've made those mistakes, I look at those things, I don't know what to do any differently. Let me encourage you. The first step in all of this, in breaking these habits and making a new future for your family, is to identify the problem. If you've experienced trauma sexually, maybe today's the day to stop running from it and hiding it and ignoring it. But to do the really hard and vulnerable and painful thing of saying, this hurts and I'm going to seek help. And if you're here caught in all kinds of behaviors and sins and not sure what to do, like with any addiction, the place to begin is to recognize that you have a problem and that you cannot, by your own power, change it. You will not become the person you want to be by just trying harder. So, today when it comes to lust and this snare that will destroy families, maybe today's the day to say, I have a problem. I need help. Help that comes in the form of counseling and therapy and trauma recovery to process the things you experienced and the ways you've been living as a result of that pain. Maybe it's identifying the need for help. I have an addiction I can't shake. There's a ministry I really think is wonderful called Celebrate Recovery. See, often when we think of recovery ministries, we think of like alcohol or drugs and and something we need treatment for and we need to stop doing. But what I like about Celebrate Recovery is their kind of phrase they use often is what is your hurt, your habit, or your hang-up that you need Jesus to speak into and to heal? And every one of us has some kind of hurt or habit or hang-up thing we keep going back to that we need His help with. So maybe you're here today saying, I need to stop looking at things on the internet and I don't know how. Seek help. Let me help you find it. Maybe you're here today and you have gone through all of this and you're just simply feeling this shame and this guilt and this remorse. The beautiful thing about Jesus is He says on the one hand, if you look at a woman with lust in your mind, that is adultery. You are guilty. And then he turned and he spent all of his time with prostitutes and with women who had multiple husbands because of adultery. Not her adultery, but theirs. 
And He spends all of His time with sinners who are broken like you and me. If we want our family to look different than it has in the past, we have to look to one who's done things differently. Maybe your dad was a really good dad. And the the problem in your family was not that he sinned against you or was teaching you about things like, look at these magazines. Maybe the problem was he never took the time to simply speak into you your worth and your value and what God created sex to be. And you were left to figure it out on your own or to ask your friends in school and they will always lead you astray. If we want to break free from previous sexual problems, we have to identify the problem and admit we cannot do it alone. Maybe you seek help for the healing you need. Maybe you seek help for the addiction you need to break free from. Maybe you seek help to learn how to talk to your children differently. So this is what the world says, but God has something better for you. Maybe it's not your children, but your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors. Not in a condemning way. You terrible sexual deviant sinner over there. No, no, no. Don't hear that. But to offer encouragement when they feel shame or guilt or confusion or condemnation. So let me show you the worth that you have in Christ. The love that He has for you that while you were still a sinner, He would die for you. And it's my hope and my prayer that for every one of us, wherever we've been and wherever we are and whatever tomorrow holds, like David, we would turn to the Lord and see, I cannot, but He can. And we would be known as people like David, though sin may persist around us, as people who are after the heart of God. For in that we find His love and His grace and His mercy. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank You. I thank You that while we were sinners, You died for us. You sent Your Son to redeem us. God, You do not have guilt and shame and condemnation written on our lives, but instead You speak truth and healing and freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. God, I ask for those who've experienced trauma by other people's sin. Help them to take that first step or that next step towards healing today. I ask for those who are caught in habits of sin they don't know how to shake, thoughts that are pervasive, desires that are all-consuming. God, I ask that today You would help them to surrender. That we are powerless over sin apart from You. God, I ask for every father in this place, for every mother in this room, for every person who has friends with children, that we would be the kind of people who offer hope in a dark and confusing world. The kind of people who speak truth into 
areas that are gray and, and murky and that we would be the kind of people, Lord, who don't shy away from the hard conversations. That we teach what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. That our children may not walk in the same sins we've walked in. They might find freedom and healing and hope for something altogether different. God, in addition to this, today we pray for a few people specifically for sickness and for illness. Lord, we pray for Nicole as she continues to battle this months-long issue with her lungs. Bring her healing. Bring her comfort. Bring her strength. We pray for Michael and his ongoing pain and swelling in his legs. God, would you cause the doctors to find answers to bring the swelling down and the pain to go away. Pray for Michael recovering from his eye surgery. Continue to increase his vision. For Michael and his pneumonia. God, we thank you for all the mics you've brought into this church. We pray for Kelly and for Kylie as they leave for Cincinnati this week. May the doctors there bring answers. May they bring opportunities for healing. May Kylie begin to feel whole again with your strength and your energy. We pray for Liz and her stomach issues, for Corby's mom and her cancer, for Adam's dad and his cancer. God, we pray for all the people we've forgotten to mention by name. Would you be the one who brings healing to our bodies, to our minds, to our souls? And now, Lord, we pray together as You have taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we continue, I just want to say, if you would like to talk about any of these things, um, please, please, please know this. You are not judged or condemned or shamed in this place. But there is a whole lot of healing and grace forgiveness for you. As we continue our worship today, we're going to continue by collecting an offering. Uh, part of why we collect an offering is so that we can go from this place into our community to serve and love in ways that people don't expect the church to do just that. Um, yesterday, we had Brewfest. Anybody ever been to Brewfest before? You have no idea what it is. Let me tell you what Brewfest is. There's like 55 or 60 different breweries from all over the country that show up and they have a couple of beers to sample each. So 50 or 60 breweries with a couple of beers each. There's a lot of beer to sample and there's a lot of people coming to sample that beer in the heat of the, the June summer. And so you can imagine sometimes it becomes a bit of a mess. And the church doesn't usually show up in places like that, but we love to. For the last 11 years, we've been going to Brewfest and just talking to people and handing out free waters. Yesterday, we handed out just shy of 3,000 waters to people. Yeah, 
We had to go get a whole nother pallet of water because we were out within an hour of being there and keep handing out more waters to people who were enjoying the samples and the drinks and we wanted to help them or keep them from enjoying it too much in an unhealthy way. And so we handed out almost 3,000 bottles of water and had all kinds of conversations with people and it was a really wonderful day. Now, fun story, if you don't know this, when we first went to Brewfest 11 years ago, there was a miscommunication between us and the director, and we almost got arrested and like thrown in jail for trespassing, and now they're inviting us back year after year, please come and help us keep people sober in the midst of this. So that's what we did yesterday. When you give in this place, you're giving to help us go out and do things like buy almost two pallets of water to give to people who are drinking to have conversations and say, you are loved and we care for you and we hope you have a good day. And so we believe in this place that by giving, we get to participate in what God is doing, not only in this place, but outside of this place in our community through us. And so if you came prepared to give today and you'd like to give uh, with cash or check, you can do so in the black boxes as you exit by placing that cash or check there in those boxes. If you filled out one of those physical connect cards with a way we can be praying with you or we can be connecting with you, you can place that there as well. And if you're somebody who prefers to give electronically, you can do so at thepointknocks.com by clicking on the little teal button in the bottom corner. However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. Well, every week we welcome you to text in your questions and I will do my best to respond. Um, so Steve's using the orange microphone. Steve, what questions came in today? Well, the, the first one, is this working? Yes. First one just says, is a comment, love the new song. Thank you for that time of worship. Yeah, thanks guys. Okay, the, okay, the first actual question, what why even differentiate between wives and concubines with that many? Like, what would even be the difference if you're one of 700? It's a great question. And if any of you have more than one wife, please tell me the difference. I don't know. Um, actually, let's talk about some other things if you have more than one, okay? But uh, I think in the culture, there was an obligation. If you married somebody, you were uh, responsible to provide for their future generations. Uh, and if you were a concubine, it was just a person of the night. So... I think the distinction is he had 700 he was obligated to provide for, ongoing child support and other such things, and 300 he was not. <laughs> Needed to be okay. really wealthy for that. <laughs> okay. Well, th this one says, how do you start feeling closer to God when it seems like he isn't in your life at all at the time? A couple of answers. Uh, the first being, He has promised to meet us in this place when we gather. In fact, coming up next week, we're going to come and we're going to share in a meal that He's given called communion, where He's promised in that meal He will always be with us and forgive us. And so I think one place to start is by committing to a regular habit of being in this place together to hear His Word and to sing His praise and to receive His forgiveness for all of your sin. I think another place to start is in community that's not just sitting beside people, but actually talking 
with others. And so that's where we have these connect groups that are starting in the fall, an opportunity to spend time getting to know people, to be real and vulnerable and share. I'm not always as great as I want to be, and I could use your help. And so that's a good place to begin to experience His love through other people. Um, And then I'd say finally, uh, the more time we spend in His Word, reading what He says and listening to what He's still saying, um, the more we can draw close to Him. And I would love to help you figure out where to start if you want that. So let me know. Okay. How come we do not have elders? Are you planning on having elders in the future? That is a great question. Um, The short answer is, why do we not have them? Well, that's complicated, and I'm not entirely sure. Um, Do we plan on having them in the future? Uh, We're actively in that conversation. We do have a board of directors uh, called the Pastoral Advisory and Accountability Team, and that's a mouthful, so we shorten it to PAT, because that sounds less confusing, I guess. And um, this team is currently discussing, like, long-term, what is our governance that is most healthy to provide accountability to make sure I'm doing what is right and that we as a church are going in the right direction. And so uh, we don't currently have elders for complicated past reasons, and the future is unknown as we figure out what the best uh, future governance looks like. So I'll let you know what we discover when we discover it, okay? And if anybody really likes reading bylaws and changing them, please come talk to me. (laughs) Nobody? Okay. No volunteers there, right? right? (laughs) Okay, how can I root my marriage more strongly in Christ and bring him back to being the foundation of it? Yes, the best thing you can do in your marriage is to be centered in Jesus. Uh, I promise you, that the better your marriage is in being centered in Jesus, the better your marriage will be in general. But probably also, when it comes to sexual things, that will probably get better the more you're seeking Jesus. I had a pastor that once told me, he said, a relationship's like a pyramid. The two of us are down here, and God's up here. The closer we get to Him, the closer we'll be to one another. And so how do you do that as a married couple? I would suggest um, begin reading the Word together or praying together. In fact, praying together is the simplest and hardest place to start. Imagine if every single night before you went to bed, the two of you together prayed for the other person out loud together. And specifically, not for the other person to suck less and do the right thing tomorrow. That's not going to be good for your marriage. No, for the good and great things you want to see in them as you draw closer to Jesus. It's the hardest thing to do because if you've never done it, it can be really uncomfortable. And it's the easiest thing to do because literally every one of us can do it with no previous experience. So I would say commit to praying with your spouse or your partner every single day out loud and praying for them. Um, Being in the Word together or joining a, a Bible study or small group can help. There's a lot of things, but that's where I'd start praying with each other. Okay, I think that is it. I've refreshed a few times and nothing new has come up. Excellent. That is simpler than I expected. So, as always, you can text in any question anytime and I'll do my best to respond either in person next Sunday or um, middle of the week on Facebook. I'll do a little midweek video if you guys have something that comes in in the next day or two. Um, 
If you would like to talk to me about any of this stuff, if you have questions about where you're at in your journey and how you can find hope and healing, um, please let me know. Don't use the text and church number because that's anonymous. I won't know who you are, but my phone number is on our church website. My email is. Um, You can fill out a Connect card online and just say, hey, I'd like to talk to Pastor Adam, and I would love to meet with you and help you take that next step in your journey of finding his healing. So before you go, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.